0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is a podcast about curating and photography. I am joined today by Sarah Meister, who up until recently was a curator in the photography department at MoMA, but just last month it was announced that she'd been appointed the next executive director of Aperture, the Nonprofits Arts Foundation and prolific publisher of photography. You'll hear me ask Sarah at the end of this conversation what's next for her, and she does a great job of sort of hedging that answer. And so I'm a bit sad to not break the news on this show. She did a great job of, of concealing it. But this episode was recorded before that was announced. And so she talks about her work in the context of, of MoMA. You know, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about graphic design history, I often wonder how what we catalog, what we archive, and what we document to teach history tells a particular story about the profession and about the practitioners in the profession while leaving out so many others, leaving out an unknown amount of graphic design history. Especially in this world, in this sort of contemporary culture where in many ways everyone is a graphic designer, everyone is graphic designing, how we catalog all of this work becomes a really complicated question. And should we even catalog this work? How do we situate the work of the designer who's experimenting with form in some interesting way against the small design studio in middle America, designing logos for local clients or the amateur making posters for their band and the shop owner whipping up you know, some quick sign in Microsoft Word. All of this work is of course graphic design, but most of it will likely never be remembered, will be lost to history. I've come to think of the study of photography as an analogous challenge. Like graphic design, we all fancy ourselves photographers today with incredibly powerful cameras in our pockets all the time. And so, how, I wonder, do photography historians think about this flood of images? How would they think about the fine art photographer versus the corner store portrait studio? And so, With these questions in mind, I asked Sarah on the show to talk about this and to talk about how she thinks about photography and photography history. We begin the conversation, though, talking about Sarah's own background as a high school sort of photo kid who fell in love with the darkroom before realizing in college that perhaps she was better suited to history, to curating, to writing. We also talk about how she and MoMA think about building a photography archive and how her job has changed over the last 10 years with the rise of smartphones, with increasingly powerful cameras and the popularity of photo sharing apps. Through it all, we talk about the power of history, the role of the curator in sorting through this mess of images, the lessons to be learned from the great photos from history, and the importance in thinking about formats and displaying work like this, whether that is a photograph or a piece of design. It's a fascinating conversation, and despite being a a longtime photo enthusiast, it's a little bit outside of my, my usual subjects, but I think you'll find, as I did throughout this conversation, how many things those of us in design can learn from Sarah's work in photography. It's a really, really fun conversation. Don't forget, scratching the surface is made possible because of listener support. If you enjoy the show and wanna help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. These memberships truly help keep the show going Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of as the director's commentary for the podcast. It includes reflections on the episodes, previews of upcoming episodes, and all sorts of other bonus content. If you want to help the show, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider becoming a member. You can get all the details and sign up at scratchingthesurface.fm members. Thanks again for listening. And here is my conversation with Sarah Meister. a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into all of this mm-hmm. uh that you're doing because i had read that you actually uh come to photography originally as a practitioner as a as a photographer in high school yeah uh, it's a generous like... it's a
1: generous description of practitioner okay. <laughs> but yeah i'll okay. take it i'll take it uh,
0: a, a photo maker let's mm-hmm. say someone, someone who is who is making photographs uh one of those kind of high school darkroom kids um and that it was in college that you you know, maybe realized that wasn't for you. And that's when you kind of moved into the academic side. I'm, I have a two part question to begin. I'm interested both in where the interest in photography came from when you were a a kid, and, and what it was about photography, and then what it was in college where you said, Mm, maybe I want to approach this from another way. Can you talk a little bit about, like, those two moments in your life?
1: Sure. So the the interest came from, you know, like most middle school students who have an opportunity to take a photography class. You know, if you're so lucky, your school might have a dark room. And these days, you would have to be even luckier for that to be true. And I just loved it. I thought the whole thing was magic. You know, you, you could... Go into the dark room and you could make something that felt like a different way of seeing the world. You could see your own world reflected back at you. I have my my middle school portfolios, they're hysterically boring. Um, But they, you know, so I just I loved it through and through. And then when I got to college, the darkroom actually weirdly wasn't quite as nice as my high school darkroom. And I had the opportunity to be an intern at the Whitney Museum one summer. And when I was there, two of the other interns were upperclassmen. And they started saying, you know, why don't you become an art history major? And Hmm. the combination of thinking, well, instead of... Uh, oh, and I should say also, I took a photography class in college, and you know, the day when you realize that you're really actually not that good, <laughs> there yes. yeah. you know, it, it happens when you're when you're being honest and you realize, huh, I am not making anything that's nearly as interesting as mm-hmm. what has already been made, yeah. but wouldn't it be interesting to study uh, what what has been made? So, I, for instance, I was at Princeton and they, fortunately, uh, Peter Bunnell was held one of the first endowed chairs of a photography professor, sort of teaching photography from an art historical mm-hmm. perspective. And so it was a, it was a very easy, natural, um, and looking back, obvious transition since I had zero talent as a photographer but lots of zero
0: really like what's it mean, really zero well
1: i mean pretty darn close i would say i would say the more you know on some level today everybody's a photographer so i would say yeah. my instagram feed is you know certainly average and is a <laughs> is a fair expression of my photographic talents mm-hmm. and you know i open my you know you, you can go, you can see that for yourself. Um, at the same time, what I think I might be better at, and what I learned to do first in college and then certainly throughout my career, is how do you think about photographs? How do you frame them differently? How can you understand the world through them? How do you how do you appreciate all of the amazing photographs that really, really talented people have made, you know, over the last 170 years? And then you're talking about something. Much more interesting than anything I can do, you know, with my 35 millimeter SLR back in the day or my iPhone Today, you know, it's better. So so that's kind of how I made the transition um, From making pictures into thinking about photographs.
0: I have one more question about that which i think is interesting and, and honestly i really relate and i think i kind of came to the realization for me much later that that my place in the field of design might not necessarily be being a designer i suspect uh, you're
1: better than i am but anyway I but
0: i know you. i know exactly what you're talking about and i definitely have had that moment also um but I, i'm curious that you said people were saying maybe you should study art history where did that what do you have a sense of why that was recommended to you? Did you have an interest in in art history before? Were you writing? Where did that come from?
1: I would say it was more, I had very tolerant parents who believed in a liberal arts education. And so the idea that I would graduate from college with actually zero marketable skills was not terrifying to them they've thought I mean and actually
0: yeah. Yeah, um, that's nice
1: just to prove it to them I moved back home because when I first started working at MoMA I was making so little money <laughs> I certainly couldn't pay rent so mm-hmm. um, you know that's just good good fortune actually and it's one of the things I think about in the field today and I think it's really important it's like back then because my parents lived in New York, And my, you know, baby sister was still at home. Like I could live at home that we, you know, they had an apartment that I could live in. Um, But I think going forward in all seriousness, making sure that those opportunities are available to people whose parents can't let them move back home, you know, paying interns appropriately and really thinking about how we're going to make the field a more welcoming place is really important.
0: Do, do you have thoughts on, you know, your background studying photography, how that translates into the the art history? Like when you kind of moved over into art history, did having that background of kind of being in the dark room, knowing how to compose a picture, did that change how you approached the the history work?
1: I think... Certainly initially, and maybe to an extent today in that I'm like attuned to the nuances of the process, it made a difference. Um, But I would also say, you know, I never went to graduate school. And Mm. on some level, when I I think about broadening job descriptions, you know, which is another thing that I think the world needs to do is to not require... Um, you know, where can you look at skills that are translatable? And, you know, funnily yeah. enough, of course, everybody is a photographer today. So, yeah. you know, I, I say I'm not a photographer. I am in the same sense that I feel that anyone with a phone is a photographer. And so how can you recognize and appreciate that that or that other skills might bring as much to the curatorial profession mm-hmm. as a formal art history, and you know, I did in especially in the beginning of my career in like the late '90s, it was a very um, theory-heavy moment. You know, it was very intellectual. Mm-hmm. It was very, um, it was as if you you couldn't be a proper art historian. I always felt like I wasn't a proper art historian because I hadn't gone to graduate school. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I like about the f- way the field has shifted in general. Is that as um, art history programs more and more recognize the value of object-based study, which really is how I would consider myself an art historian. When you can appreciate object-based study as its own kind of training, you know, combined with being a curious person who wants to read and learn, mm-hmm. and not you know not only that um, that the field is shifting to be more accommodating to to a wider range of backgrounds and i count mm. my own in among those but i i think what seems also promising is that it it's you know others as well
0: hearing you talk about broadening job descriptions and even going back to to what you were saying about your parents mm-hmm. being okay with you graduating without any marketable skills. And, and I have a limited knowledge of, you know, kind of art history programs and the opportunities post studying art history. But I imagine you had, you know, the the, the range of, of jobs that you can take. I, you know, you could be more of an academic uh you could teach, well, you I could write
1: <laughs> but other one could one, one could teach, within... one could yeah.
0: you know, write scholarly journals. Um there's there's, you know, various other kind of like arty websites where you know people write about these things. And then there's the kind of curatorial side, and those there's overlap between those. I don't mean to separate them out, but I'm kind of I, I guess the question that I'm asking is was Curatorial work a natural next step for you, or how did how did you find yourself working in museums? You mentioned you had an internship at the Whitney. Was that kind of uh, yeah. a natural next step?
1: Um, well, the Whitney internship, I thank them to this day. I have no idea why they <laughs> hired me, so thanks, Whitney. Um, and and even when I started working at MoMA, you know. I really, when I think back to how little I knew my art history degree, um, I've, let's just say I've learned a lot since then.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: but I think to your to your point of sort of what options are there for people who have studied something like the history of photography, it certainly used to be that if you, you know, if and if you graduated, if you know, you finished your PhD, let's say on a photographer you would only, even going into museum work, even to work curatorially, was considered a distinct second. Meaning if mm-hmm. you if you were worth anything, you were getting a job as a professor um, and you oh. were contributing your writing to peer-reviewed journals. And that was pretty much anything else was considered um, a lesser than. Sure. Now that has really opened up again, along with what I was describing as that object-based study. Um, And now for instance, the Mellon Foundation has been encouraging more dialogue between our history programs and museums. So um, I have had the pleasure of working with two, what we call museum research consortium fellows, three actually, and each of those are part of a broader effort to say, okay, we know you're gonna graduate with a PhD. Let's dream of, like, let's really respect what museum work might look like. And then the, if you follow along that trajectory, I would say there will be more and other options going forward. And Because the, the truth is there aren't, the number of universities and the number of tenured positions isn't growing. And yet, right. people are graduating with more and more PhDs. So, it's really worthwhile for the whole field to be thinking, not not how can we look down on people who don't become professors, but you know, what other what other ways right. are there of putting this these years of really excellent focused thinking into making a difference in the world, which right. you know is fairly widespread in the field these days. You know, people want, uh, I feel very lucky to be in a bubble where we all want to make the world a better place. We want to think about how to make it more just and equitable. And, you know, and part of that is really expanding.
0: So, so can we talk about that kind of in the context of your role as curator of photography at MoMA? What, like, how, what does... How does how does MoMA think about I'm not asking you to speak for the the whole institution, but Thank how does you. MoMA think about photography and then how do you think about you know where photography fits into an institution like MoMA and then MoMA's kind of role in in the world uh, yeah. at large?
1: well the the fun thing is that I'm I literally today we are beginning printing a book uh, that will come out this spring about Brazilian modernist Mm -hmm. photography. And in particular, a group of amateur photographers who were active in Sao Paulo after the Second World War. And in writing about them, the the work is just amazing. It's inventive, it's original, the prints are just jaw-droppingly beautiful and big. And then the question, and uh, 10 years ago, I had never heard of a single photographer who's in the show. <laughs> so mm, mm, how mm-hmm. could somebody who's been in the field for so long um, have zero idea about the Photocine Club at Bandiranch? And how do I explain that today? Meaning right. what, what does that mean? So this project has been a great opportunity for me. Oh, and not to mention the fact that there were connections between this club and MoMA even.
0: Mm. In the oh, wow. late 1940s,
1: there was a precocious filmmaker and photographer who was a member of the club whose parents sent him to the United States in 1948 in an effort to um, dissuade him from marrying the woman that he loved, that they, whom they disapproved of. And mm. so they sent him abroad and he visited Edward Weston in California and he visited Edward Steichen in New York. And when he visited Steichen, um, he went back to Sao Paulo. He sent Steichen seven examples of his work in you know out of based on their conversation that he hoped Steichen would find interesting. And apparently Steichen did because he included them in two exhibitions at MoMA in 1951 oh, wow. and in 1959. So there was like the wonderful promise of this connection. And then decades went by and just nothing else, you know, the dictatorship um occurred starting in 1964 in brazil and it was like all of this just faded into complete obscurity to the point where those art history books that i was reading as an undergraduate you know no one mentions brazilian post-war photography that's not that's not in the story um except if you live in brazil and so partly what got me thinking about this is like how do we how do we use these great pictures not just to sort of introduce them to a north american audience and to have everyone say wow they're so amazing but how can we also have it say like what can this teach us about geographic bias mm. about what we've overlooked and also i would say about the bias of the amateur is like right. how can we bring you know photography is so unruly it's so everything and i think part of the part of the part of the challenge has been like if it's so everything if it's so central you know it's like a vitamin you know you don't you don't smell it or see it but you know that you breathe it and it's everywhere around you it's essential to life as you know it and yet the the challenge for people who have been tasked with or who set the task for themselves of making sense of it you set up these hierarchies of like this is better than this mm-hmm, and i mm-hmm. myself have done this for my whole career it's like no my job as a curator is to be a judge you know to say i think this is better than this to help people kind of navigate the universe of these billions of images and actually what i've now what i'm now really coming to terms with is that This is one of the ways in which we create structural hierarchies that end up discounting or excluding Mm -hmm. whole swaths of the history that if we kept a more open mind and looked at the field more broadly, we might say, okay, maybe it's true that most amateur practices are uninteresting or imitative or cliched, but let's really look carefully and say, this one sure looks interesting. And what can that teach us? And, yeah. you know, and and am sure I still I feel the need to, you know, the whole project is about trying to say, well, interesting to whom? And and then hmm. acknowledging, well, interesting to me. You know, you sort of have to implicate yourself a little bit in it.
0: Right. Uh, this is so interesting to me to think about through the lens of graphic design which mm-hmm. is you know the field that I come from because it's it's almost exactly the same
1: actually mm-hmm. and, and I
0: think I think you could make the argument that graphic design is like a vitamin that it is just like <laughs> well, like you can't true. escape graphic design right. you wake up and you look at Pick your phone spoon. right yeah like like that is design right away and much like you were talking about the the photo history that you studied in school was a, a very particular way you know I think probably graphic design is very similar and that the graphic design history that I was taught that I am guilty of teaching sometimes Mm -hmm. is that it's like a a kind of European thing that you know they they kind of develop grids and stuff which is such a a limited view of design history which is probably similar to um to to kind of how photography history historically Mm -hmm. has been taught and the other thing that strikes me is it's not just professional and amateur which I I don't think that's not exactly what you were saying but it's not just you know there's photography that's art and then there's photography that's not but that there's these these level no because level sets a hierarchy also there are these different genres of photography there is the fine art photography
1: scientific and journalism and yeah
0: and and like the snapshot and like the corner portrait studio Mm -hmm. that you know you go and you get your family picture taken and 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 we we just I don't know consciously or not put hierarchies there is that oh this is art this is a service this is something else and it's the same in graphic design and there's like the graphic design shop in the town where I grew up that did like signage for the small businesses which is never going to go in a history book but that doesn't mean it's not graphic design or the person who just prints up a sign on Microsoft Word and hangs it in their window to say um, you know you can't enter unless you have a mask that's also Graphic design, and so it. it I, I the, the, But
1: you can still say what you can still say what you feel is more interesting and less in that. In other well, words, you don't have to give up that. I would say.
0: Well, and, and that was that's exactly yeah. kind of what my question is. Is like, how do you think about that? Like, mm-hmm. like with, and, and you mentioned that in a way, everyone is a photographer. And right. again, I would argue everyone's a graphic yeah. designer now too. So. How how do you start to think about? A, sorting through mm-hmm. all of that and then making those judgments and kind of figuring out what is interesting, what is worth remembering, what is worth talking about.
1: So so a huge part of that comes with, I I believe, looking at history and sort of understanding how what you're doing relates to what's happened before. Because I think, you know, there have been spoons before, you know, George Jensen designed <laughs> a spoon. you know, it's like hey, <laughs> um, these things exist so... Looking back, I would say for photography, I had always cited um, Alfred Stieglitz and the photo Secession at the turn of the 20th century. So in the wake of George Eastman inventing the Kodak number one camera, and this was the camera where the advertising slogan was you push the button we do the rest. So Although there were millions and millions and millions of photographs made before Kodak introduced that camera, it was that camera that really put photography into the hands of everyone. So in that, Mm -hmm. it was sort of the predecessor of Instagram and everything else. So the struggle to look at that moment and to really understand, okay, why did Stieglitz and his peers feel so threatened by all of those amateur enthusiasts? And they, they felt that it was profoundly threatening because it was, became harder and harder to distinguish. If they felt like they were making art with a capital A, and I would argue they were, how do you articulate and distinguish what they were doing from what everyone else was doing with a camera, with the hordes of professionals who had a studio on every street corner and all of the amateur snapshot shooters. And, all, you know, So it's was like there, there was a sense of there are billions of images and how are they going to distinguish what they did? So coming out of that, they felt like, okay, What we're doing is art. And they actually made photographs that emulated art in other media in order to underscore that distinction. Saying like, you can't do this with the Kodak number one camera. You can't do laborious darkroom processes. You can't make, you know, things that look artistic um, or artistique. You know, you you have to like, so they really set that. Okay, so the looking back at history is part of how you answer the question. And that that sense of themselves as gatekeepers and where do curators and critics also... Um, one of the things that's been interesting about this Brazilian modernist thing is to think like, in what ways have I, while disdainful of that sort of paranoid distinction that I yeah. think that have I inadvertently actually done similar things in my, in my desire to articulate what it is that I think is important. So I think with the Brazilian modernist project, what you try and do is build a context for it that helps justify your opinion beyond it just being your opinion, you know? Mm -hmm. So you, you really, you immerse yourselves to the extent that you can. They they've Actually, this club published a great journal. And in that journal, they published their own critiques of one another's pictures. And whether you agree or disagree with them, and you know, sometimes I did one, sometimes the other, the, that opportunity to have a foil against which to measure your own judgment seems really valuable. So, you know, my feeling is I've been doing a lot of soul searching and really thinking, okay, I do believe that it's my responsibility. I don't know, maybe that's the wrong word for it, but I believe that certain photographs are more interesting than others. And I believe that it's my job to try to not only articulate which ones, but also maybe to say why that matters. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate to work with colleagues on a, online course about photography. And that online course, it's called Seeing Through Photographs, if anyone cares. It's offered on Coursera. Um, we'll put free. a link okay. in the show notes. It's free. It's free. So that's actually really important to me. But that course and connecting with hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are interested in understanding what distinguishes what they do with the camera from mm. what MOMA's collecting, what MoMA's exhibiting, and articulating both the both why the why of that distinction and the why does it matter <laughs> really right, um, right. has completely transformed my own sense of what interests me about my job because I don't want to speak to a group of 16 enthusiasts who know everything that I know. I mean, I would be happy to speak to those 16 enthusiasts, but I would be more interested. I am more interested in talking with all of the seeing through photographs learners and really thinking through like, why does this matter? How does the past come to bear on the present? You know, what can we learn from Stieglitz's snobbery? Um mm-hmm. I remember having a conversation with a, a dealer um, who was decrying that, you know, young people today didn't know Stieglitz and Strand and Steichen's name. These are three sort of towering figures in the history of photography. And I remember just feeling like, who, who cares? You know, in other words, yeah. it, unless we're explaining to someone why they should care about those names um and and even how those names have eclipsed other histories that might be equally interesting but understudied then we're really maybe not making the most of the you know the wonderful platforms we're given as curators
0: i had read in preparing for this i had read that specifically you said that you were interested in something that you call functional photographs mm-hmm. Um, which you described as photographs that are not made as fine art. Um, and I think I think that's interesting in, I might be oversimplifying this. Um, I think that's interesting in the context of an institution like MoMA, mm-hmm. you know, the Museum of Modern mm-hmm, Art. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how, and, and you're talking about kind of uh, getting rid of this distinction between like art or not maybe getting rid of, but, you know, opening it up, reconsidering it of like art versus not art. I'm wondering how important that is yeah, to you. You know, like you, you, the, the criteria that you're talking about is interesting, which I, I know what you mean, but it's so hard to yeah. actually like qualify.
1: Well, I'll say this, you know, photography is in some ways like design. These are the fields in which, <laughs> they invite these conversations most naturally, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the idea Mm -hmm. of articulating what is it that makes for a beautiful chair as opposed to one that's just a chair, or what is it that makes an extraordinary photograph as opposed to one that's just okay, you know, average, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So these fields um, have the potential to really, get at these issues most um, easily. But I'd say the whole museum is interested in questioning and um, is questioning why the hist- why the collection looks the way it does, and how the narratives that I think have been simplified and distilled mm-hmm. over time, deserve to be reconsidered. So, and you know, this might happen in painting when you think of Marie Cassatt and you think, mm-hmm. okay, well, if we've, if we're looking down on, you know, if we're saying that like, it's too um, sentimental pictures of mothers and children, then you're leaving out whole swath <laughs> of practitioners largely women who for whom pictures of mothers and children came very naturally. Um, So these and I so I would say it's certainly not I'm lucky in that I'm a part of a photography department where we you know this is this is both the core of what we do, it's the joy of what we do, but I'm in an institution with colleagues who are equally committed to thinking through how um, where are our biases, and how do we reimagine histories? And so, the whole way in which we're using the collection as more of Um, a laboratory of an, you know, how do you experiment? You know, we're changing the collection galleries now much more frequently than we ever did. We're integrating media so that all of these conversations and all of these new ways of thinking are, are happening alongside one another. And, you know, the hope is that when you walk into the first gallery on the fifth floor, before you even get to Starry Night, if you look to your right, you see photography and film and that implicit understanding of the contemporaneity of these things, you know, in other words, Starry Night was painted the same year that the Kodak number one camera was introduced. So you don't, you don't need a dissertation. That's, that's an invitation for a visitor to think, wow, you know, these things are next to each other. and we hope that makes people think, what does that mean? How did photography change the way painters mm. felt what, what they were supposed to do? And I'd go even one step further, which is that first gallery is filled with names, you know, Cezanne, Rousseau, you know, Van Gogh. And then you go to the next gallery with the photography and film. And I would say for 98% of our audiences, they probably don't know the name of a single person mm. whose work is on view and in fact of course a significant number of those are anonymous or unknown anyway but so mm. what does that signal to a viewer you know how can that right. help encourage a sense of curiosity you know in other words and not just a going through and checking off a greatest hits but if you know that you're being asked to pay attention to things that are unfamiliar to you is that not only a skill that helps you as you walk through the rest of the collection galleries paying attention to an artist whose name you may not know but you know in my fantasy world that's also a skill in life you know how do you yeah. how do you approach something that's unfamiliar with a sense of openness and not requiring recognition as the you know before you're interested
0: has your job gotten harder in the last (laughs) 10 years with the rise of the smartphone and even like not even just the smartphone but also just like Instagram and, and social media generally where the image has become like the dominant form of communication and that the image travels yeah, and that it does yeah. lose its context and bounces everywhere. Does that change how you think about your work? Or does that make your work harder in any I, way? I,
1: I, don't, I think it would be grossly unfair for me to say it makes my work harder. It's certainly more <laughs> more interesting maybe. And, <laughs> and I, I think again, to return to the seeing through photographs, a lot of the questions have to do with how can you help articulate what's the difference between an image a photographic image or any other kind of image and an object like a photograph mm. is at heart, a physical thing. It has a materiality. It has mm. a scale. It has, um, you know, it is something that the museum has historically collected and displayed. Although even that is more complicated than I'm making it seem. But in my mind, you know, photography can be like the gateway drug for <laughs> what what makes everything more interesting. So no, not harder. But but I do think it maybe it maybe it makes it more urgent in that what people are looking for now, because it you know, in the same way that Stieglitz felt um, overwhelmed by all of the images that were being created at the turn of the 20th century, that's a widespread feeling today. And so mm-hmm. to the extent that you can use, you can catalyze the privilege of having thought about these things a lot in a way that helps people approach their Instagram feed or anything else, that's, that's fun. That's not, yeah. I'm I'm not, and I should say that another thing that I've been working on at the museum recently is an installation of work by a Life magazine photographer named Gordon Parks. Can I, or do you want to? You want to say it first? No, you—you were. This is what
0: exactly what my next question was going to be. Actually, it's so funny that that you just said that because I was thinking about—I was thinking about Parks as you were talking about that last answer, and because I was thinking about it in the context of. The image versus the object that you yeah, were just saying, exactly. actually, and 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 I, I'm I was kind of curious about the boundaries of those two mm-hmm. things, and what actually is the object versus the image. And I was thinking about it in the context of Gordon Parks, who was shooting photos for Life Magazine, and and the the question that I was going to ask is is like, is Life Magazine the object there? Like, what, what happens when you take the photograph out of the context? that it was in and put it in another context. Um, and how do you kind of think about that? So I don't know, that might not
1: have been what no, you are no, going to no, say. No, no, that, that's exactly it. It's, it's so one, it's that, first of all, somebody who's doing what is honestly called work for hire. So mm, he was, mm-hmm. you know, how do you um, recognize and appreciate the ways in which that is every bit as aesthetically and artistically valuable as a work by somebody who is isolating themselves in some ivory tower with no you know no assignment mm-hmm. or anything so but but in terms of how they circulated i think that's also fascinating and we made in the in the exhibition we are in the gallery we have a vitrine and in that vitrine we have copies of Life Mm. magazine from September 57 so that our visitors can understand that that is the way in which these works originally circulated. In other words, what you're seeing on the wall is one kind of experience, and it's an incredibly moving one, and it's an incredibly aesthetically satisfying one. But if you really want to understand in 1957 the only way in which people would have been able to see these works. Right. Where if you worked at Life magazine, you might have seen his original little slides that he sent in. Um, but if you look in this vitrine, this is what millions and millions of people would have seen. And we also have this wonderful instance where um, one is on view now and one will go on view in a while when we have to do a conservation swap because photographs are light sensitive, but We have an early gelatin silver print made from the color slide, and that's because it was prohibitively expensive to have. Mm. So when Parks, outside of the magazine, when Parks was printing these pictures in the late 50s or maybe early 60s, he was printing them in black and white. And when you look at the pictures, of course, they're so cinematic. They've got all these extraordinary jewel-like tones, and yet... For Parks, when he was making a print for exhibition, you know, early on, he's Mm -hmm. making a black and white one. And so I also love when you can bring the economy of all of this into the story because, and these are the, you know, and again, I'm not, my colleagues are just as committed to telling these stories that complicate how we think about history,
0: I mean, I could I could talk about Gordon Parks for another hour. I mean, he's like a, a personal hero of mine. Um, I think that the context here is really interesting. Kind of thinking about the original context for the images and um, kind of telling that story. And again, this this strikes me as a, a really strong parallel to graphic design and honestly why so many graphic design exhibitions always just feel so like uh you know because it's like this work whether it's a poster or a sign or a logo or a banner or something is meant to be in the world and when you Mm -hmm. take it out of the world and put it into to the museum you lose something and i'm I imagine that that's similar to photography, whether that's something that's going in Life Magazine, or you wrote earlier this summer, a great piece about photo books, which is kind of my <laughs> ideal way to uh, consume photography is, is the photo book, um, but then company. versus right. versus the show, versus an exhibition, versus your Instagram mm-hmm. feed. Um, how... How important is it to kind of tell the story of the context and, and maybe even of the technology that yeah. allows for the context? And, and where does that fit into the kind of telling of the stories you are telling in an exhibition?
1: Well, I would say to begin with, it's, it's thinking about, you know, what's the goal? So if your goal is to be making a great photo book, then you have certain principles in mind. You know, scale is not a concern or, uh, you know, but you really, you want to be thinking a lot about sequence. You want to be thinking about um, that particular materiality of a printed page. Um, but when you're thinking about an exhibition, it's a, it's a really different thing. And so uh, last year I had the privilege of working on a Dorothea Lang. Project called mm-hmm. Dorothea Lang Words and Pictures, and it was a book and an exhibition. And you almost go through two different sets of two different thought processes. You know, one is what would make this a compelling book, and then a separate, completely, I mean, weirdly, yes, actually, almost completely different thing is what would make this interesting for a visitor to walk through as an exhibition and oh and then you know then of course the pandemic hit and we Mm -hmm. thought through a third thing of like well how do you translate either one of those into a virtual experience and what does that mean and you know when you're fortunate to work with people Um, You know, I get to work with our publications department and designers and editors on that. Then I get to work with our exhibition design team on that. And then I get to work with our digital media team on thinking through what it would be like as a digital experience. It really, it takes different forms. So maybe just to use Sally Mann as an example, you know, um, we invited a lot of, uh, we invited 12, in fact outside artists, writers, thinkers to pick their favorite Dorothea Lange picture and to write new words about that picture. And I thought Mm. for sure I knew which one Sally Mann was going to pick. And she picked a totally different one. Mm. And her words about that picture, what she saw in it and how she conveyed what she saw through words were unbelievable in in the book. Like it was, it was, and so in the exhibition, initially we were like, well, so let's just put the words of these authors and writers on the wall next to the picture. And we realized that in fact that's that's really an experience that's meant to be kind of held in your hands as a book. It's it's terrible and boring if you ask people to go through an exhibition and you know my worst nightmare is that somebody goes through an exhibition and they don't even look at the pictures they just read the words so how do you tease these things apart and that's you know then we thought of an audio guide and Sally didn't do the audio guide but she did agree to have a conversation about lang and her own work that was part of what we called a virtual view of the exhibition and it's sort of like different inroads in so my feeling is you you just have to remember that nobody wants to see a book as an exhibition and you can't take that experience of an exhibition and make it a book. But if you try to sort of think through, well, you know, how would you make it interesting? Start with yourself. <laughs> Hope that others might feel the same way. Um, you're probably onto something, but it's rarely it's not the same thing. And that's, I guess, a little bit like why I think it matters what scale a photographer decides to print something at. You know, yes. the, it is whether it's this tiny little intimate um, Irina Roszkowski, um jewel-like experience or standing in front of an Andreas Gursky and that, you know, what that presence means. These are these are important to attend to, and you know, fortunately, people who work at museums spend a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking about these things.
0: Does that? I, I have one more question just sure. about that, um, because I do think it's interesting. In a way, it's kind of like a smaller version of what we were talking about with social media, where the, you know these images just bounce around, and there is no kind of fixed. Uh, fixed size or, you know, these mm-hmm. things can just change. And w- even thinking about about Gordon Parks and Life Magazine, that, you know, that the, the magazine was a particular size and you're showing the actual magazine in the exhibition, but then, you know, when somebody views that online, they are not seeing that. Do you think about those kind of levels of remove of, you know, where you, where the object sits and then the, like, how far away from that you can get? Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: no, it, it's very important. Because at a minimum, you want people to be conscious of this. Meaning, you um, again, sorry to keep going back to this Brazilian modernist project, but I, it's fresh on my mind. Um, but when you when you get to it, there was this little magazine that they published, and we were we have an illustrated chronology at the back of the book. And the production manager and the graphic designer, they were like, oh, the pictures are, you know, they're just not great quality. And my feeling was like, don't worry. You want people to be able to feel how intimate and inexpensive that journal was. So it's not about pretending that it was this beautiful, you know, hyper clear, large format image, you know, meaning the little text figures. Um, At the same time, you do want the plates, you know, the actual prints that they made that were exhibiting to be, to read beautifully and with clarity and with, you know, force and presence. And so it's like, you, you, people don't think about this a lot, but it's our job to think about it so that intuitively when you approach something, it may, you know, something, I mean, and actually with Parks, it's an interesting thing because even though they circulated in the magazine and that was sort of their original form, what he, what Parks made were these beautiful color slides. And Mm. so what the prints, what the modern prints allow you to do is to appreciate in a way that really transcends that, original historical form where, what is, what is his artistry? You know, what is his contribution? Why is it, you know, that he is able by making these extraordinary photographs to make people pause for long enough to think and reflect about what they are of and why they matter. And that's something that, you know, inarguably is, Well, I don't know. Isn't it an arguable word? Anyway, that without a doubt, is that a word? Um, Without a doubt, when you're looking at the pages of Life magazine, you're losing something of what Parks actually made. And so recuperating that for audiences, um, whether it's in the book or in the exhibition, is really important
0: what's um so I mean you mentioned the the Gordon Parks exhibition is, is going on now you mentioned the Brazilian uh, modernist photography exhibition that's opening soon what's next for you what um what other projects are down the line that you're allowed to talk about or that, that you're excited about
1: well I think I might take a little vacation <laughs> um no I uh, nice. we the the truth is a lot of our attention as curators, going forward across the institution is to focus on the collection galleries to think about what we're doing in them what are other parts of the collection that deserve to be elevated and looked at in different ways and how can we use the collection galleries to tell these stories that bring forward not only the sort of strengths of the history but maybe even the absences from it. So we're, you know, we're, con- we have almost, we have weekly, you know, biweekly meetings where we dream about that with curators yeah. across all the departments. Um, and it's a little bit of a beast, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah. you, you set yourself a goal of having each one of these collection gallery and each one really is kind of an exhibition, you know, meaning it has a thesis and an argument, and that argument is carried forward through work from the collection. And, you know, it, it takes, they, each one of those is, is a lot of, of fun, but challenging work. Um, so we also, in September, is the fifth and final gathering of a project that I've been working on with a professor at Columbia named Noam Elcott called the August Sonder Project. And again, that is thinking of a, a historical project, but why why it matters today, what August Saunders' legacy can teach us about um, thinking through actually a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about. So hmm. that's coming up. Very excited about that. Um, but I, I think also, you know, the, the pandemic and everything is also focus- forcing us to be more disciplined about you know how do we Mm. make um we will be doing less you know doing fewer acquisitions and but we want the impact of those and the meaning of them um to be undiminished you know our our commitment to collecting contemporary art and our commitment to um showing the collection you know isn't changed so i think it's a nice almost maybe a reset Mm. a little bit um it's it's been a busy couple of years so i'm personally (laughs) a tiny tiny bit of a breather sounds great
0: yeah no that sounds really nice i'm i'm with you there speaking of of that uh my last question which is the question that i use to end all of these conversations i would love to know what you're reading right now
1: oh so I, over vacation is a treat for myself. I read Philip Gefter's biography of Richard Avedon, which I thought was fascinating and I loved it. Um, But then my New Year's treat has been that my dad sent me a copy of uh, a book called Dark Salt Clear and uh, by an author named Lamorna Ash. And I'm only a couple chapters in, but I definitely like to alternate my sort of, pleasure reading with my work pleasure reading (laughs) so if the avidon counted as work pleasure reading then this is really just a treat you know nothing like falling into a novel for a little while
0: i love it i'm gonna add it to my list okay good uh Sarah this was such an interesting conversation for Thank me I you. loved this so much thanks for uh, thanks for being on the podcast
1: I'm really thrilled uh, to speak with you and I, I definitely agree that you know in their ubiquity we have design and photography have more in common than people might think so yes
0: yes if if, if anyone takes anything from this episode that is a great thing to take
1: away <laughs> <laughs> maybe something else too but we, yeah, we, we won't, we won't <laughs> with any luck
0: this episode was recorded on January 6th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Bargasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fa. Thanks for listening.